Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Creed. Hi, Julie. So today on Bold Becoming, we had have Creed Revere, and I invited Creed because she, well, she's a specialist in estranged parents of estranged adult children. She has a podcast on this, very valuable podcast, and this whole estrangement is a a huge identity loss, obviously. And she also has um, some other stories about going into police work or becoming a policewoman and then it not being what she thought it was. And when I read her story about police, I was like, that's so much parallels what I did with social work and what many people do with social work. We go in and then what we think we're getting into is something very different. And then she also has a, um, a breakup story. So thank you, Creed, for showing up first of all thank you for the work you're doing with estranged parents and estranged adult children very heartbreaking situations and hi hi thanks for having (laughs) me thanks for having me on the show julie I, i really appreciate it i really do good so pretty much the way i do these shows is i let you start where you'd like And I interrupt along the way and focus on sort of how things impacted your identity. So let's just jump in. Sure. So let's go back to the the first major identity that I had in my life um, outside of becoming a parent. We'll talk about that when we get to the estrangement piece. But I became a, I started working in public safety in the late 90s and eventually ended up becoming a police officer and you know you get into that field and you get all the accolades and the girls, and you know um you're up on a pedestal the public looks at you back then many many years ago right that you were doing this wonderful spectacular thing for your community and yeah kind of like social work yeah unless you're a cps worker then that's a different story right right okay but this is you know keeping the community safe helping people out in their time of need um being there for people and and that's you know a big part of the reason why i went into it was to help wanted to be of service so i did that and and how old were you when you I was became... in my I was in my late 20s when that happened and I had already had my two daughters and um you know was I mean gosh I went to the academy you know I worked full time went to the police academy had two kids and you know I really worked hard and the academy in and of itself was a whole nother identity thing because uh, you know I was entering a field a male dominated field um, the physical piece of that was really challenging for me, um, in the training. And so was really proud of myself when I 
completed that and then became then was hired on um, and started working as a as a law enforcement officer. And over the over my time there, it was it was interesting because I had people in my life that I would tell me things about myself that I didn't see. Um, And good things they were that well they they told me that you know this is this is kind of a hard career you're kind of you know why do you say these things about people why do you talk about people this way why do you that kind of thing right oh they didn't understand your perspective right right but also you know I was becoming jaded I I was becoming because I was seeing people at their worst that's yeah, what happened just, to me working in a battered women's shelter for a very short time. I became yes. quite jaded. It, yes. It's, it's, you know, it's like, it doesn't take long. No. Yeah. And I, I did not see that. And so I ended up meeting my, my life partner at that in time. And so you were a single parent. I was a single parent when I started. Okay. As a police officer, and then ended up meeting my my partner, my life partner at that time, and and my partner kept <laughs> telling me like, "This is you. You are out of control." I was angry. I was, I everyone was a suspect. Like, yep. you know, you were guilty until proven innocent, um, and, and I understand now that in order to I, in order to catch a criminal you have to think like a criminal right right and so i started to think that everybody was a criminal like and everyone was up to no good and things like that and that and so my partner kept saying you know this is mm, this is crazy you're i just don't i don't like this and finally came to me one day and said look it's the career or this relationship, but I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. And so, so he met you sort of at the beginning of your career with so, that. Well, so he, I, he knew you a little, he knew, he knew you before. So it was, it's female. So it was in a female. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's okay. Um, but n- did not know me prior to being a police officer. Okay, so she, so she, she came into the relationship. I was already a police officer and that that's where it was. And because of how just, I was just not a pleasant person to be around and I wasn't recognizing any of this for myself. And so we had had long talks about it and I basically told her she was crazy and she was, you know, that I was fine. And I was, I just thought, you know, you just don't want me to be a cop. You just don't want me to work shift work. You just don't want those types of things. Right. And finally realized she meant business. She was like, I, I am, if you want to do this, that's fine, but I'm out. If, but if you want this relationship then you're going to have to leave, leave this. And so I, I wanted my relationship. So I left that and I went back into prior to becoming a police officer, I worked in as a 911 operator and dispatcher and all of that. And so I went back into that work for a little bit of time and still, I was still immersed in it and still, you know, that kind of thing. And ended up coming out of public safety period at a little a little while later. What was interesting is that she then 
wanted to become a police officer after don't, I left. Don't tell me that. Yes. And I said to her, you know, I will support you, but I would rather you not because as you said to me that this has changed me, it's going to change you. And so, so she, how, how did you change Be besides just seeing everybody as suspect? How did you think of yourself differently? Who were you um, before you were, were a cop? And who were you when you were massively into being a cop? I was a, I was a confident person who generally believed in, in the goodness of people, right? Like I, I wasn't egotistical, but I had confidence. And then when I became a police officer, I got the ego, the power, the control, all of the things that come with wearing the badge for most police officers. And then started the, everyone is a suspect and didn't associate with anyone who wasn't a police officer or anyone who wasn't in the field of public safety because you can't trust anyone outside of the field. So you only associate with people in the field. Um, you know, so eat, sleep, breathe this world, eat totally immersed in this world. And she came from a world where totally not law enforcement related. And so had this wonderful, fantastic perspective on life and just could not deal with what I was bringing home. Right. And I would bring home, I would bring it home. Well, I yeah, because did, did they provide any debriefing? Like when no, I worked at the no. sexual assault response team in the emergency room as the social worker, I'd, I'd hear, I would be there while the police was taking the, the um, interviewing, or I don't know what the words are, but taking all the information about exactly every last detail of what happened to determine whether a crime was committed to then sign off on the forensic evidence collection. And so I heard these stories in the most minute details. And, and then I was with the, the people when they were like for the right. whole time in the hospital during the police, during the forensic evidence collection, um, getting the meds, just all that the job was to accompany the person. Right. But then I went home, I had no debriefing mm -hmm. and I'd go home and you have to debrief, right? Right. Right. And that's in law enforcement, there's this, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't, you know, you quote unquote, man up, suck it up, get on with life, you know, onto the next call, don't have time to deal with any of this. And so you go home and you unload, right? Right. And you talk about how, and, and I would just be so, I, looking back now, I could see that I was so internally upset about things that were happening that I was seeing and the injustices and I mean just on and on and on but I didn't know how to communicate that to her in a way that wasn't angry and full of just I mean I would yell and you know pound my fist and I mean it was just it was really awful I mean I look back now and I think about Oh my gosh, why would anyone have wanted to have been anywhere around me during that time in my life? I was just, 
I was just an awful human being. I really was. And it wasn't with intent. I had no intent to be that. We can't just like experience horror without it coming right. out of us somehow. And right. this is this is sort of off topic and and you don't whether you know the answer or not, but okay, what I know is that police officers have a higher domestic violence Absolutely. rate than the regular population. More police officers are beating their spouses right. than non-police officers. And so maybe this is part of why that happens. Maybe it's not just because they're because they're all macho guys in there. No. Maybe it's because they have so much job stress that there's no programmatic way to help them with it. And they just because wow. Yeah, that's exactly so, what I have talked about over the years is the suicide rate and domestic violence rate, alcoholism rate with law enforcement is out of this world. Out of this world. And people don't know this, right? And it's not because they're bad people. It's no. because their their job is impacting them and it's not taking care of them. Correct. Exactly. I mean, and there's, there's some, zero some are, some are bad people. Okay. Well, other than I mean, that, there's, there's bad, bad people everywhere. Every field, right? But yeah. But the majority of them are good people. However, you place, you know, place something in an environment that is not healthy and you get someone who's not healthy right in mind body and spirit and that's the way that it was I mean it's just it's just inherent in the field well and I just I'm just still amazed like 40 years later or so I don't remember what year it was I was working at that battered woman shelter I am still amazed at how fast I could see myself turn cynical towards yeah. all men yeah. i mean it it because i only worked there for about three months they had some administrative power struggle and one person hired me the other person said they didn't have permission to hire me and anyway right. but in, in just three months of working part-time at this battered woman shelter i i just saw the world so differently so it, it could just happen in a blink of an eye Yes. So imagine like every day, all day, every day for years on end. And yes. so you didn't see that happening to you, but your, your wife saw it happening to you and other people and wow. Yeah. So you didn't so, see it happening to you. I did. I did not. I did not recognize it. Um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, when you're, you can't see the forest for the trees, right? You're, when you're in it, it's really hard to see that. So when I came out of it, when I left the field. And so you, the, um, the catalyst that got you out of it was, she said, it's me or them. Right. Right. Even so, ultimatum. Yeah. So I left the field and it took me, I say it took me about, mm, three to five years before I really started to kind of settle down out of that, where I could then begin to see what it had done to me. Like I, so, so tell me about those three to five years of adjustment, because this is one of the things about identity transition, forced identity transition, where the rugs pulled out from under you and you sort of had the rug, you know, invisibly pulled out from under you. 
over a period of time versus one incident is that it takes longer than we expect to yes. actually re reconfigure ourselves. So I was in public safety in, in public safety work a total of about 13 years. My time mm -hmm. as a police officer was only about two and a half years. So, so at just two and a half years of being a police officer, and it took me three to five years of trying to figure out who I was, learn, you know, learn a whole different way of being in the world. Because let me tell you, when you go from wearing a badge and driving a car that people move out of the way for you, and you can go however fast you want to go, and you can do whatever you want to do, and then you no longer have that, it's a, it's a huge thing. It's a huge, you know, I always had my gun on my hip, felt secure, safe. Nobody was going to mess with me. And then you come out into the world, you're not carrying a gun, you're not wearing a badge and you're not driving this car with lights on top of it. And so now you're like, well, who, who am I? Who so what am that, I? What does that feel like? It was so dysregulating. It really was. I didn't know. I didn't know where to, what to do. And what do you mean what to do? I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do in the world. I didn't know how to be in the world. I didn't know, you know, I was mad. I was mad at her because in some way, you know, I felt like she forced this on me. In another way, I was like, well, I really need to be home more. I'm working way too, you know, I worked way too much and now I can be home more. I had so many conflicting thoughts and things happening that I didn't know which direction to go. Like I just felt, you know, kind of like you, <laughs> you don't know if you should go forward or backward or to the left or to the right. So you just stay still kind of thing. And you don't do anything because you don't know what to do. That's a little bit about how I felt at that point in time. Interesting. And trying to figure out how, why people had this perception of me. And the perception was, man, she's a bitch with a capital B. That was how people looked at me. People today look at me and they go, I cannot even begin to imagine you like, like that. Like they, it's just incomprehensible for them to think that I was ever like that. So it took me, like I said, about three to five years to, to just settle down. I mean, I just, you're, when you're in the when you're in that work, you're always amped up. You're always on the lookout. You go in a restaurant. I don't know if any, any you or any of your listeners know this, but most police officers won't sit with their back to the door because they have to see who's coming in the door. They're on, on, in quotation marks, 24-7. So it, I had to really settle into not being on all the time and being that hyper aware and hyper you know focused and alert and power and all I mean all of that it was it was real it's really an amazing journey I mean looking back now it's like wow how did I do that how that's what I was going to ask you describe more how you did that how you how does somebody manage not having power the way you did I I tell you I'll tell you what happened <laughs> Go ahead. I ended up having power over my children. And that's oh. what led to eventually led to my estrangement. Oh, you transferred that, yep. that habit, it's basically a habit 
-hmm. way of thinking, way of acting. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 I was really, really hard on my kids. And, and so when I couldn't be quote unquote hard on, you know, the public at large kind of thing, and not to say that, I mean, I wasn't the kind of police officer that went in all puffed up and, you know, ready to fight all the time. That wasn't who I, that's not who I am, but I carried that air of authority and that air of don't screw with me. Right. Like, because I'm, I, have, I have the ultimate authority. Exactly. Exactly. So I brought that home and transferred it over to my children. And so it was really, they had a really difficult time growing up because of all of that. So, yeah. So then it took the three to five years to come out of that. And then it's, and it's interesting again, because she went into law enforcement. So I got to see, like, I'm dealing with my own stuff. And then I see this exact same thing happening with her. Oh my God. So we, I'll t give you a, for instance, we were driving through a parking lot one day and I was driving, she's in the front passenger seat and, and I'm looking for a parking space. So I, my attention's elsewhere. And all of a sudden I hear, I'm looking for a parking space. And all of a sudden I hear her say, or she said, she goes, mm-hmm. And I turned around and looked and I said, what? what what's happening she goes see that guy over there and I turned around and looked and I see this young kid probably 18 19 20 years old sitting on a bench outside the store and he's got headphones on and he's listening to his music he's got his hat on backwards and he's but you know he's by himself listening to his music and he's a I suspect said, what? I said what about him and she goes he's up to no good and I said did you just hear yourself and she said, what? And I said, he's sitting on a bench listening to music, not talking or messing with anyone. And you are classifying him as up to no good. That's what I'm talking about. That's what police work does to you. And so, so I had, you know, I had to deal with that. So that's when I really started to realize what happened to me when I saw her going through it. So I don't want to take too much time on this, yeah. but you have to answer this question. How is she going to tell you to get out of police work because <laughs> it's changed you? And then she decides yeah. to go into police work. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> I know. Agreed. Yeah. So, but that's, that's kind of how that all played out. It took me about eight years before I so actually heard go eight, eight years for what? To really come out of that and feel like a different person it took so wait what were the three you first of all you were talking about two to three years so what the, the, the what was the other years, five years the three to five years was just me settling down and, and trying to figure out this new life and then the other the next five years three three to five years was about realizing what i had become and how I had become that, like really facing my own demons, my own, you know, because no one wants to think bad about them, their own self, right? Like no one wants to think that they were this unhealthy person, right? Mm -hmm. This mentally, like that just wasn't a good thing. And so it took me a long time to get, to get out of that. So the first three to five years was basically sounds like it was recovery 
And the second three to five was growth. Yes. Yes. And during that time, you were also part of your recover. Well, at least the growth was watching your wife turn into who you were and sort of mirroring it. I wonder yeah. what would have happened if if she hadn't, if you would have ever. I know that would be interesting. Yeah, I've thought of that. I, I don't know. I have no idea. No idea. But I look back on it now today, and I'm super grateful. I'm like, she did me a huge favor, huge, huge, huge favor. So I'm glad. I'm I'm 100. <laughs> percent Growth growth doesn't come for free. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. There is a price tag for sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that then led into down the road. She was still a police officer and ended up having a couple of affairs at the end of our 10 year relationship. And I ended up, she left the relationship and I was at a place in my life where I was, I had lost the job. I had lost the partner. I was getting ready to lose the house. I mean, like talk about the perfect storm everything in my life was falling apart and your and your kids were how old at this point um at this point my um my children are seven years apart and so my oldest daughter was on her own and and hat was had just had a baby and mm. living on her own and then i had my youngest one at home she was just entering high school okay and um and i had a friend i had the the year prior to that i had come to washington from florida to washington state on vacation and i had made the, the decision at that point in time i was like when my daughter's you know when she's done with high school i'm moving out here so my friend was like okay you've got you know maybe the universe is telling you now's the time for you to move because everything is falling apart down there come out here you can stay with us until you get on your feet so on and so forth so i talked with my daughter and i was so distraught over the loss of that relationship. I mean, I was in the fetal position on the floor, couldn't function. I was like, you know, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess because I, ne I never expected our relationship to end ever, ever, never crossed my mind. Um, and so I had to figure out, okay, how do I, you know, what do I do from here? Before you get into that, now let's talk about what the identity loss is when the rugs pulled out from under you on a relationship. I mean, it's hard enough to enter relationship when both of you sort of see it coming. Mm -hmm. And then it, it's another thing when you don't see it coming and it's gone and, and what that does to your identity. It rocked my world, rocked my world. I, I thought life was over. Like I, I so this all happened two and a half months after our 10 year anniversary and a week and a half before my 40th birthday. Like that was when she left. Big milestones. I, yeah. And I had people telling me, oh, your forties are just going to be the best decade of your life. I'm here to tell you I'm in my fifties now, the forties, my forties were my, the worst decade of my life. Um, that that's a side note. So here I was with this love of my life who was gone. And, and not just, it wasn't that she just left the relationship. She left the relationship for someone else. So here I was dealing with the rejection, the betrayal, because there was an affair, multiple affairs. So I was dealing with all of that 
in addition to, I think the biggest piece for me was dealing with the death of dreams and who I thought I was going to be with her after like our kids were grown and out of the house and we had so many plans and this, you know, we were going to do this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, I, who, who am I? I don't even, I had no idea who I was outside of her. I really didn't. So I like, I like that you brought up the, that term death of dreams, because that is a, a kind of identity loss that is kind of underrated because we haven't, it, it, it can be said that we don't, well, we, you, you didn't have it yet, so you didn't really lose it. But a dream is something. It is. And like I had a dream career that I worked 10 years towards, which was to work, get my master's in public health and work in international public health in Africa. And by the time those 10 years passed, my health was just down the tubes. I couldn't go work anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a loss of a dream. And it was really, you know, it's a big deal. Because you you work really hard on on setting yourself up for this dream, and then you can't have it. Right. I had, and, and, and so then and so then that is identity loss because it's like I was I was this person going in this direction. I wasn't there yet, but everything was headed there. Yep. And now I have to pivot and, and it's like, well, wait a minute. So now who do I need to be mm -hmm. if I'm not going in that direction? Right. Absolutely. And that's exactly what, what happened. And I had, I was, I was very proud. Like this was the longest relationship I had ever been in. My, both my parents married and divorced. And I was just like, this is, this is my life partner. This is who I'm going to be with till my last breath. Right. Like that was where my mind was with that relationship. And so when it ended, I had, oh my gosh, like all these dreams, all this, all these plans, everything. I, like you said, I had to pivot and I didn't, I, I've, I've been used to change in my life. I'm not fearful of change and things like that, but this was a, this was more than change. This was, this was an absolute pivot that I, I had prior to that point, I don't think I had pivoted in my life before that to this degree. So I ended up in the middle of all of that. And, you know, most people tell you like, because I was grieving, right. I was grieving the death of all these, these dreams that I had for us that we had together that I had for us and me and all this in the middle of all this, I made this decision to move 3,500 miles away from everyone. I knew the only life I had ever known and start life again. And Oh my gosh, who does that? <laughs> like I, like who does that? I, it's, I look back now, people say you were so brave to do that. And I'm like, no, I don't know. I don't think I was brave. I think I was just in this place where I was so numb because I couldn't believe that I was where I was at in my life. I really didn't. I, I just was, I just couldn't function. I, I, I mean, I got up and I got dressed and got her to school every day, but I couldn't function as a functioning adult. I had such a hard time doing simple things that 
in the past, and I'd been a single mom. I, I, you know, I had, I have taken care of my family and to get to that place where I was just so and felt so incompetent was devastating. It was really, really hard for me. So we, I asked my daughter, you know, she's entering high school, high school. And I'm yeah. like, big, can big we move deal time to move. miles away, you know, from all your friends? And she was like, if it'll make you stop crying, I'll do whatever you want to do. Like, just stop crying. Oh, wow. Because that's where, I mean, that's where I was. It was just every day sobbing and it was a mess. And did you go to a therapist or seek any kind of professional help? At that point in time, we, we had a family therapist that worked this person worked with all of us in our family from, you know, at different points in time. And I think I, I, I saw her a couple of times, but not a, on any sort of regular basis type thing, you know, and, and she basically was saying, you know, like, you can't hold on to her. She wants to go. You have to, you know, figure out this next step and next phase of your life. And I just was like, I can't do it. I don't, I, I can't do it. That was the first time in my life I'd ever said, I can't do anything. In the past, it was always, I'll show you, I'll prove to you. If somebody had said, you can't do something, I'd be like, watch me, right? And this time I was- So just, you were broken. I was broken. Absolutely, utterly broken. Yes. Absolutely. And let me just put in a little plug here for, it, it's good to seek professional help and beware that the vast majority of therapists, competent therapists, are not actually competent when it comes to grief and loss. And those are words from a professional licensed clinical social worker, grief therapist that I, I interviewed, Jill Johnson Young. And she trains therapists on, on grief and loss because she's spot on. In my day job today, I manage a group practice of psychotherapists. And I'm here to tell you, they don't know what they're doing when it comes to grief and loss. They have no idea. Yeah. So we always, we always like to say, oh, go get a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> and, or, and especially some of these support groups for grief and loss can be real dicey in any right. kind of groups to me can be real dicey. But also I'm glad to hear that that you uh, concur with what she says. Totally, totally. And it's not that they, it's not that they're incompetent therapists. They just don't have the training in it and they don't, you know, right. and, and most people, most of us come into life with grief. And I mean, think about the grief and loss that happens, right? In life, your pets, your jobs, your dreams, your health, your, I mean, there's all sorts of things that we lose um, and grieve over that our society doesn't necessarily recognize. So, yeah. Our society hardly recognize loss of a, a human being. Exactly. It's like you're supposed to get over that. Right. You don't get over. You nope. you move forward. You learn to live with it and move forward. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm I would say today I'm not, you know, I'm not over the loss of that relationship, but I have learned to live with it and learn to move forward. And I look forward to another relationship and, you know, this, that kind of thing. But yeah, that one was just devastating to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another identity check-in. So once you started um, working through, I don't know if this is the right terminology, that grief and loss and got to a more stable place, then 
how did you, how did your identity change when you actually or may, i'm assuming you address the grief and loss well that's interesting because i i actually did not because <clears throat> yeah you I'm, said you were numb which indicates that you're actually not addressing it right i did not address it and i did not address you know i went on with life and moved on and you know got myself together and started doing things but i did not address the grief and loss actually until the last nine months today and we're 13 years outside of that. Yes. Because I re I did not recognize it as a loss. Like I, like I knew the relationship was a loss, but I didn't recognize the dreams. The death of the dreams that we the had. The dream, yeah. That was a huge pivotal point for me. And so and I recognize that therapy. So this oh okay. So therapy helped you get there. Yeah. Because this is um this is what is important to understand for people is that we have what's called the primary loss. So you lose your relationship. Mm -hmm. But then there's there's like a cascade of secondary losses that are attached to that. Yeah. And sometimes those don't show up until later in time. Agreed. Agreed. Right. Because so when I moved, right? So there was this loss of even though the move was my decision there was the loss of our community, right? Like where we lived and had lived all of my, I was 40 years old when I moved. I'd never lived anywhere else except right there in central Florida. Like that's where I lived. So losing community, losing, I, I described the move from Florida to, to Washington state, like as if I was had moved to a different country. It was that vastly different in, you know, from temperature to just, societal things here culture things everything was vastly different and so i had i lost my culture from you know the south things like that a way of being in the world it was totally new to me out here very 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 different so yeah there were there were so many losses so so many losses with that and remind me again why you moved you you went to seattle once and you met somebody and you wanted to live there yeah so or... i had come out here with my partner the year before the split um on vacation and i just fell in love with this area and okay. then i had a friend who was living out here at the okay. time and she's the one who offered for us to come out and kind of you know get a do-over start over fresh so i sold everything we had in florida except what would fit in the car and my daughter and i drove cross country um and landed in western washington and we've been here ever since and absolutely love life today wow yeah now um is there any serendipity in this story <laughs> well i think that you know i'm now <laughs> uh, over the last decade um i've done a lot of inner self work and i can see now that this was everything happened to get me to where i am today and had all of those events not happened i would have never left florida i would have never been out here i probably never would have transformed the way that i have in who i am today and for that 
I will be eternally grateful for all of my losses that I experienced back then. You know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for the time that I spent as a police officer. I, I'm grateful for that time and I am very grateful that I am no longer in it. I am grateful for my ex-partner. I learned a lot about myself, about how to be in the world, about relationships. I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about myself when I was broken. And had it not been for her, I may not have experienced that. And so all of those things have made me who I am today. I, I hear this on, on so many of my interviews. Um, what was it like to be that broken? Go back into those moments of just complete brokenness. And, and because some people listening to this might be that way and think there is no light at the end of the tunnel. So now you already know there's light at the end of the tunnel, but describe being broken because other people sometimes think, well, nobody else has experienced this that I've experienced, right? Right. I remember, I remember a day, a very specific day when my daughter called my partner because she was so worried about me. And your daughter's how old at this point? At this time, she's a, she's 14, 15 years old. And she called her to say, I, mom is crying on the floor. She is, I can't get, you know, she won't get up. I just, I'm really worried about her. And so my partner came over and ended up calling the family therapist and she came over. And I remember say, having a conversation with her and I said to her, well, I haven't talked about this in a really long time. I said, I just want the pain to end. I can't go on feeling this. And she said to me, she said, it hurts. I know it hurts, but this is a temporary feeling. And you will get through this. If it's one minute at a time, just one minute, take a breath and you've made it to the next minute. And if that's what you've got to count on to get yourself through this, then that's what you do. And slow, I did slow down and be in the moment had yes, because I was, I was so focused on get rid of this pain, get rid of this pain. And the more that I focused on that, the more pain that I felt. And so the more that I was able to be in the moment with the pain, and to acknowledge it and say, just this, this minute, just this 60 seconds, and then I'd get to the next 60 seconds, and then I'd get to the next 60 seconds, right? And that's, that started a healing in me. And then the next piece was, um, I had a, a friend of mine who insisted that I write a gratitude list. And I was like, I told her, I said, I don't have anything to be grateful for. I told her, I, and she kept on and I finally told her, I said, if it will get you to shut up, I'll write it. But I'm, she wanted me to write 10 things down. And I said, I don't have 10 things that I'm grateful for right now. I couldn't think of one, let alone 10. So I went to bed that first night. And what I put on my list was I was thankful for my bed, mm -hmm. my pillow mm -hmm. and my kids. And that's all I could think of to be grateful for. And that was a stretch. I really had to push it to get to that. Um, and the next day she was like, okay, I want you to write another one. <laughs> and it, you know, we fought for about a week over that. 
And then that started a gratitude practice that I carried on for six years, 365 days a year from there. But that brokenness was something I had never experienced up to that point. And I haven't, I, I say I haven't experienced that. I did experience that with my estrangement. But outside of those two times in my life, I, I mean, it was bad. It was really, really, really bad. Really bad. Thanks for going into that description. And, you know, I've known about this gratitude practice stuff and hearing you describe it, it made me think of something I never thought of is that while you're doing, while you're writing those sentences, not only are you focusing on something positive, you're also generating options. Yes. For thinking differently. Right, right. And that's the power that we all have is to explore and find new things. Mm -hmm. And that's generating options for them to make new choices and even just new choices in how to think. Right. In fact, those are the most powerful new, new things is to change our thinking. Well, that gratitude practice ended up in, in such a way that I would end up going through my day. Now this is, you know, this is years after, you know, this is a couple years into the practice of, of writing a gratitude list every day, but I would go throughout my day intentionally seeking, oh, I'm, I'm going to put right. that on my gratitude list. Oh my gosh, look at that, you know, cloud formation that looks like a you know, heart. I'm going to put that on my gratitude list. You know, so much, somebody held the door open for me going into the store. I'm going to put that on my gratitude list. I started looking for those things and those positive things started to show up in my life because I was right. actually looking for them. Yeah. Totally changed my way of thinking. So the, we can see the glass is half full or half empty. It's a choice. Right. And also like parenting, catch your kid doing something right instead of wrong. Correct. And so when we start looking for that, it's there. Yeah. When it's we just there. like with the police yeah. officer, when we start looking for bad, we find it. Right. Right. So it's it's mm -hmm. there. There's so much power in what we and it's all around choice of how right. how we're thinking. It's all around choice, but I do want to, and this is the caveat that I always tell people. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't get to that place without first those 60 seconds at a time. Like it, I, you know, because I hear people say it's a choice, think happy thoughts. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I could have never thought happy thoughts in the middle of my brokenness. I could, I, I did not have it in me. And so then I felt like even more of a failure <laughs> because now I can't think happy thoughts when people think I should think happy thoughts. Right. So I'm really, aware and conscious of helping people to understand sometimes we have to take very baby steps before we can get to the place that we want to be and that's okay that's and okay. so so what's coming up for me is that there is this thing about called being in crisis yes and so when you're in crisis you are not in a position to be acting in these other ways that people want to tell us that right. you know we could be acting that's just not the time when you're in crisis it is the very every minute type of thing correct correct making the choices for every minute to get through right. every minute that is your only focus and that is it is that literal that 
60 seconds is all I can focus on. You literally do not have the, I did not have the capacity. Right. That's, that's, that, that is a part of a crisis. And that's why crisis intervention workers make decisions for people. Cause in general, we want to empower, like as a social worker on the sexual assault response yes. team, you know, I, I would tell the person what to do instead of ask them what they wanted to do, which is more empowering. Right. But when they're in crisis, they need to be helped because they're just not, they're not in a position to, to be acting their regular self. Right. And, and so that's what I wanna put out is that really recognize that when a person is in crisis, don't expect, have the same expectations of them, meet them where they're at. Right with the with the trust that they will get through it and then they'll get back or move forward or you know get it together but it just don't judge somebody and don't try to expect or tell them to do things when they're in the middle of a crisis and let me just give a little tiny thing i learned this in this incredible parenting book called um smart love and it's like they say when your kid is crying, let them cry. Don't try to tell them they're okay because they're not okay. Right. That, that's why they're crying. And and don't interrogate them on what happened when they're in the middle of crying. Right. If you actually comfort them and hold them while they're crying, and I found this true with my son, he stopped crying in half the time. Yep. And then and then I find out what happened. Right. But number one, I don't tell him he's okay. Oh, everything's okay. No, everything damn isn't right. okay. Right. Right. And, and so, um, so that's, that's the whole thing about crisis is let the person be in crisis. Yes. And, and they are going to get out of it. Yeah. And so that's, that's so fortunately that therapist was able to let you actually not tell you that it's okay because it wasn't okay. It wasn't, it was anything but okay. Right. Yeah. Now, were you suicidal at all? I never thought, actively thought about suicide, but I kept saying, I mean, looking back now, I probably was on some level, but I didn't like in my, my own mind, I didn't think I'm going to kill myself. I didn't think anything like that. There's All a, I kept saying was, I just want the pain to end. Right. I just want the pain to end. So sometimes we might feel like being dead because it's, it's just like not okay. That doesn't mean we're suicidal and that we're going to become dead. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that's, and she was able to see that. The therapist was able to see that I, I didn't want to die. I just wanted this pain to stop. So she worked with me on how can we stop that? You know, how can we work through that to get to a place where I was no longer in the fetal position on the floor saying, I just want this pain to stop, right? How can we get up off the floor and onto the sofa? You know, you might still be saying, I just want this pain to stop, but let's get off the floor and get onto the sofa, right? <laughs> like steps instead of saying, okay, suck it up. Let's get on with life. You know, you're going to be okay. And I, she, yeah, none of that ever works. I don't, I don't. Think yeah. Or the logic you're okay. You have a place to live. Your yeah, daughters no. are healthy. It's like logic doesn't, no. doesn't help in these, in, in these kind of things. It does but, not. 
we're, we're this is so fascinating and i want to get to the estrangement story because of course this is your specialty right now and um let's do you want yeah. to tell that part of the story yeah so I, again, we, my daughter, my youngest daughter and I moved out here and, um, and then a few years later, my oldest daughter moved as well. And so we, we were out here and in 20, um, my youngest, my wait, oldest wait, your daughter, oldest daughter moved out there because she wanted to be closer to you. She, yeah, she had gotten to a place. Well, there was, there were some other things going on with her and that's her story to, to say, okay. talk about that, but, um, it wasn't just hey, I miss you guys and I want to come live in Washington. There were some okay. other things there <clears throat> that brought her out here. But that being said, she came out here. They both got into relationships. My oldest daughter got married, had a had a baby. My youngest one was in a serious relationship. And in 2016, January 2016, um, I, that previous fall, I had, ended a relationship that I was in. I had a really super stressful job. And again, kind of like not the tsunami of events that happened before that, but similar, I was really stressed out. Couldn't, I was crying all the time. Couldn't, you know, I was just stressed. So we go through Christmas, it's tense. It's just like, you could cut the tension with a knife in the room. And, and both of your daughters are, uh, um, over 18 by this yeah. time. Yep. Okay. Yep. They're adults living their own, living on their own. And so that January, mid January, I, my, my oldest daughter reached out and she was like, you know, mom, I think you, you know, words to the effect. I think you need help and maybe you should go see a social worker at a hospital. Basically she was wanting to have me committed. Um, because she just thought that I was losing my mind because I couldn't, I couldn't stop crying. I mean, it was, and it was, just, there was so much stuff happening in my life. And I told her I wasn't going to go. And about a week later, and I've never been the type of mom where I've, there's been constant daily, daily contact with my kids, you know, so several days go by, I don't hear from them and I, it's nothing out of the normal. And so about a week goes by. And I send text messages and no response. I call, no response. No one calls me back. I email, no response. And then I'm blocked on social media. Oh, and Ouch. I'm like, what the fuck? Exactly. Exactly. No talk about if you don't get it together, mom, this is going to happen kind of thing just silence. And so I was estranged from my youngest daughter for about a year, my oldest daughter for almost two years. And in that time we, we did have some communication, but it was with my oldest daughter, it was really nasty communication. She wouldn't let me see my grandson. She, I mean, just, you know, you're, I won't let you do to him what you did to me. And I was like, what did I do to you? And she was like, you know what you did to me. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't know what I did to you. And so anyway, I go through that. I mean, I'm going through, you know, this on top of all the other stress that I had happening in my life. And I start having panic attacks. My blood pressure goes up. I start having health issues. I end up having to leave my job 
and have to move because my income went down by two thirds. Um, oh. And just, I mean, it was just, you know, another colossal perfect storm. And so about nine months into the estrangement, I started attending a, well, I started a, a support group here in Western Washington outside of Seattle um, for grandmothers who were alienated from their grandchildren. And that ended up evolving into a support group for estranged moms. Maybe they didn't have grandchildren, but were not in communication with their kids. And that started, I started working with estranged moms. They, um, after I, in, in the middle of that, working with them, you know, try, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. There's, you know, this is a thing. This is, this happens. And then I ended up reconciling with my girls, with my youngest daughter first, and then my, my oldest daughter. And then people started wanting, they're like, well, how did you reconcile? How did, you know, how did that happen? And so I started working with moms on estranged moms on their estrangement, how to reconcile things like that. Um, people started asking me, do you have a book? I'm like, I don't have a book. And I'm like, hey, yeah, it's going to take me forever to write a book. What can I do in the meantime? And so I started the podcast, Last year. the estranged heart podcast. And, um, and that just went bananas before this, I knew this it. was last year right before we met last year uh, we just I just celebrated my one-year anniversary oh congratulations thank you and um and so I've I've been coaching moms now um this year I I had um coaching and supporting moms I've had eight uh clients or or those that I've supported maybe not necessarily paying clients um 10 eight of them have come back into reconciliation with their kids and two of them have had doors that were previously Sam shut opened a little bit not in full reconciliation but they're you know there's a little light there so it's been a, a process I it it broke me the estrangement from my girls I mean you know we, we grew up as moms. yeah let's let's hear a yeah. little bit more about that what because you had finally well, you were already in another crisis and then add fuel to the fire with this estrangement and they didn't, you hadn't, you didn't even see it coming. They didn't like give no. you any kind of ultimatums or anything. No. And, and so then what, what does that do to your identity when you all of a sudden realize that you're, especially once you get blocked on social media, that's kind of a, yep. a pretty red line or whatever you call exactly. it a line in the sand that's a line in the sand and um well i mean what i thought was oh my god <laughs> if my kids don't love me what the hell kind of person am i like you think as a mom anybody can come in and out of your life but your children will always remain that's what i thought you know, I could lose relationships. My parents will die on at some point in time, but my kids will always be in my life. And when they wanted nothing to do with me, oh my God, I broke again. I was, you know, who am I? What kind of a horrific person am I that my kids don't want anything to do with me? And I raged. I was so angry. I was so, I was like, how 
dare they, you know, here I had been a single mom and I had gone through the whole, all the sacrifices I've made for these kids and, you know, everything I've done for them and I've saved them from this and that and the other thing. And how dare, how dare they do this? I mean, I was furious and between, so I'd oscillate between screaming and crying because I was so mad to on the floor in the fetal position, sobbing, ready to beg, just, I'll do whatever it takes. Just please start talking to me again. Right. And I mean, it just, it was, it was awful. I I didn't know anyone else who had ever been in this position. I'd go to the grocery store and see grandmothers with their grandchildren and just start sobbing in the middle of the aisle at the grocery store. I tell a story on my podcast where I was at the, in the middle of the meat section at the grocery store. And I just started sobbing, just standing there because you see mothers and daughters in relationship you see grandparents and grandchildren in relationship and I had none of that and I didn't know that I would ever have it because I didn't know what was going on and so I couldn't go to the grocery store I'd stopped going to the grocery store I had stuff delivered so it was very isolating I stopped interacting with friends because people always want to know well how are the kids and I what do you say right I didn't have any pictures of my grandkids. I didn't know what was going on. I, I, I mean, it was, it was awful. It was so unbelievably distressing for me. So who did, how would you describe who you were or who you thought you were at that point? You know, I thought I had always been a good mom because and now looking back, I mean, I, I was like, I've always been there. You're, I've, I've always been there. Mm-hmm. Your fathers haven't. My oldest daughter, her father never was in the picture. He, long story there, but he was never in the picture. And my youngest daughter's father was in and out. And I'm like, I'm the one who was here for my kids. I had to have been a good mom. If I stuck around, I had to have been a good mom. And so I was in this place of, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I've sacrificed things in my life for my kids i've given to them i help i raised them on my own for the most part i don't deserve this and i was in a place of entitlement in some way that i felt like they owed me that they owed me something right and um and this is a large part of the work that i do with strange moms today is that your children don't owe you. They don't owe you things. Uh, And so, but that's where I was. That's where I was. And I remember having a conversation with my mother. I was like, if I die today, I do not want them at my funeral. I was that, I mean, I was just raging with anger. And so it took me, I got, you know, I was in therapy at that point in time because of the loss of my previous relation, my, that most recent relationship. And I, pivoted in counseling and I was like I've got to figure this out I don't know I don't know what to do with this like I I didn't know I didn't know what to do I had been a mom for all of my I mean I was a young mom I became a mom when I was 18 I was a young mom and so I had been a mom my whole life like I who who am I if my kids aren't in my life I don't know how to not have children you know I don't know how to not take care of someone So I went 
through therapy and it was therapy that I started to really explore my own childhood and started to explore my relationship with my mom and seeing the things that I didn't like about my mom and the things my mom didn't do. And then I was like, oh, oh my, like, really? Oh my God, I have failed as a parent. Like I was just, I went from being totally angry and it was all their fault to now it's all my fault and I'm a worthless parent because I didn't do this, that, and the other thing. And so we ended up in therapy, you know, I was able to get turned around with that, but um, it was, it was a, it was a, it was two years of hell. It was two years of absolute utter hell. And then when we reconciled, then that started a whole nother thing because then I had to learn how to be in relationship with them again in a completely and totally new way right. because the old way didn't work. Right. And so I did a lot of walking on eggshells and not knowing what to do, what to say, what not to say, things like that. And I really had to navigate that. And even when I started the podcast, we, we had not had the talk about why the estrangement had occurred um, when I started the podcast. And it was after that, my, my youngest daughter listened to the podcast and she said, you know, I think that the three of us need to sit down and talk because I think there's been some misunderstandings. And so then we had a talk and I heard from them why they estranged from me and they had every, every right to estrange. They were, they had every right to do what they did. Do I suggest doing that in the future? No, I suggest having, you know, adult conversations about challenges and struggles, but I was also, I was not an adult in conversations with them. I, it was my way or the highway. It was that police world of, you know, I'm right. You're wrong. I'm the parent. You're the kid. I know what's best. You don't. So and my, so my dad was like that. And I, in fact, disowned him for a couple of years when I was 28. Mm -hmm. And then we had this completely unexpected on my part reconciliation where I went home for Christmas and I was a, in a different state because I had changed my eating and my anxiety had evaporated and and also my therapist said you can go home for din Christmas dinner and you can get up and walk out at any time and I I'm 28 years old no and now I'm 30 years old and it never occurred to me that I could just leave right <laughs> right yes exactly yes and anyway we we so I went I went home and I wasn't going to hug him, but I ended up hugging him and 30 years of anger and hatred physically evaporated out of the top of my head. And we we never talked about it. And ever since that day, he has treated me the way he should have always treated me. Yeah. But this authoritarian shit. Oh yeah, my God. it's it's devastating. It really is. Um, and I wreaked havoc on their lives. I mean, I look back now and I've apologized left, right, center, upside down, you know, I, I've, yeah, I've apologized so many times. And I've always said, if I could have one do over in my life, it would be to parent my children differently. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on, I mean, this, the estranged heart is what my tagline, if you will, is um, 
you know, shifting hearts, transforming relationships and healing generations. And that's, that's my work. That's what I do. And that's what, um, you know, that's my zone. I'm in my zone when I'm working with other folks and helping them. And I work with both estranged parents and estranged adult children uh, because I've, I've also been that I was estranged from my mom several different times in my young adult life. And so I've been on both sides of the fence. So I know what this estrangement is all about um, and how to, how to get back into relationship in healthy ways. Wow. This is such important work. Let's see. Do you have a couple of takeaways? You know, I think, I don't know. I, my way of being in the world today is to really get to live with grace for, for self. I mean, I think that we're so hard. We're so, so hard on ourselves and we, it's hard. It's difficult to be easy and, and forgiving and true ease and forgiveness with others. If we can't have that for ourselves, it's, it's really, it's really a challenge. Um, and it took me when I finally forgave myself, right. For the ways that I parented, the way that I was in that relationship with my ex-partner and all of those things, when I forgave myself, I relaxed into my life. And that's the only way I can ever describe it is that I relaxed into being who I am today. And I am not uptight. I'm not anxious. I don't, you know, I kind of roll with the flow. I laugh more. I have more ease in my life. I don't stress out over little things anymore. And therapy had a huge role in that, a huge role. And my children telling me this is, this is not working. I'm not going to let you do this to me anymore. Right. I'm a worthy human being and you're not going to talk to me like this anymore. And I applaud them for standing up for themselves. I wish they had done it in a different way, but it got my attention again, the same thing. It was horrible for me to have to go through, but on this other side of it, I am super grateful that they did what they did so that I could be who I am today. Mm. Wow. That is, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. It's the truth. It has absolute truth. Yeah. So now you have, you have two people witness, you witnessed both of us that, that estrangement can be resolved. Yes. And, and each person is going to do it in their own way. And there is, there is an answer for some people as, you know, maybe not all. And like I interviewed this one guy and, and the abuse was so incredibly just off the charts that was like this, these just aren't people that are going to, you know, be in my life. Right. Right. And I, and I'm, so there's a spectrum of exactly. I'm very clear on that. And when I work with parents and when I work with kids, um, you know, if there's abuse going on, I don't, that's not, no, I don't, I'm not like, oh yes, you need to. Yeah. Because they're blood. See, that's the thing that people would tell me is like, 
you disowned your dad that's family that's blood i'm like if any other man was treating me the way he treated me you would say i was stupid right so what right. so why why would i let you know stay in a relationship just because he's my dad exactly and then and then they kind of scratch their head and they're like uh, you know, it's funny because I actually told my mom one time in not in the middle of one of our estrangements, but at, at one point I was very frustrated with her. And I remember sitting in the car, we had just returned from shopping. We were sitting in the car and I turned around and I looked at her and I said, just because you have the title mother does not mean I have to have you in my life. Right. If you cannot respect me as an adult, I don't have to have you in my life. And she was, you know, she sucked in her breath. She was horrified that I had said such a thing. And I was like, I don't, I don't. I can go to Thanksgiving dinner somewhere else. Thank you very much. Right, right. Now, on the other side of that, I understand the hurt that she felt at that point in time. And I wish I had probably delivered it in a different way. However, it got my point across. Right. And we've had a different relationship since then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, and, and so I think a lot of people, and we got to hang this up, but I think a lot of people stay oppressed because they don't, they can't figure out how to say it in an effective way. So they don't say it at all yep. versus just saying it in a way that isn't going to be good enough, but it's better than keeping it agreed packed inside it's got to come up and out Has yeah to. yeah thank you Julie. well thank you um what did you love about this interview oh my gosh i love that you and i were able to talk about things together that we had experienced you in your your careers and your experience in life um i love that i love that when i'm not the only one going yes i experienced this that and the other thing and the person interviewing me is like i don't know what she's talking about you you do you do. And I appreciate that. Well, I guess that's why I, this is a good topic for me because <laughs> I can relate to so much of people's stories in one way or another. Yes. And yeah, it makes it fun because like you're talking about something and it's like, wait a minute, but I, I have this right. thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. So how can people find you online? Yeah. I'm the estranged heart.com. I'm on all the major platforms for the Estranged Heart podcast, all the major um, podcast platforms, and uh, they could email me if they wanted to reach out to me. And my email address is theestrangedheart at gmail.com. Nice. Perfect. Thank you so much, Creed. It's Julie. And this has been Julie Brown on Bold Becoming. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom 
that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.